No, they weren't pissed off auto workers because they've been laid off. They were just fucking drunk assholes who saw an Asian man who bettered them in the bar and then hunted him down and beat his fucking brains out and that they got off scot free is an outrage to me to this day. That's my co-host Elise Bryant talking about the 1987 film Who Killed Vincent Chen. And yeah, she's got something to say. It's one of the five labor-related films inducted into the National Film Registry last year. The others are The Wobblies, The Murder of Fred Hampton, Chicana, and Requiem 29. Films in the National Film Registry are selected for their cultural, historic, or aesthetic importance to preserve the nation's film heritage. And the Library of Congress, which maintains the registry, says that the 2021 selections represent one of the most diverse classes of films yet. A fair description for a list that includes both Return of the Jedi and The Murder of Fred Hampton. We asked Pat Afterheide and Tom Zaniello to join us for a discussion about the labor selections. Pat is professor of communication studies in the School of Communication at American University in Washington, D.C. She founded the school's Center for Media and Social Impact, and I became a fan of hers back when she was the film critic for In These Times. Tom is the author of a bunch of books on film and work, including Working Stiffs, Union Maids, Reds, and Riff Raff, The Cinema of Globalization, and The Cinema of the Precariat. We've got links to streaming versions of the film so you can check them out, which I'd strongly recommend, though I warn you, they'll probably piss you off too. Hopefully that won't be the case for our discussion. Enjoy the show. So let's start you know, with what the National Film Registry is. Um, who wants to tackle that first? Pat? So, to, so to me, the National Film Registry is a... Um, an example of the the minimalist uh, approach that this nation takes to uh, supporting having government support culture. Uh, the National Film Registry is really nothing more, I believe, than an attempt on the part of the Library of Congress to call attention to important films in our past. Uh, the films are chosen by the, the Library of Congress but they are suggested by anyone in this country. Uh, feel free to suggest the films you want to be remembered in 2023. Um, <laughs> and the, um, the goal of doing that is to, is to really not, not do nothing more than um, have people pay attention to them. And they say on their website that they try to pick films that have been preserved or are likely to be preserved, which is a very, very small thing to say. So, it is a small project and a small thing to say. And the taxpayers of this great nation have paid virtually nothing for it. But, but the way you, I mean, I, I, I think I knew as, at least as much as what you said, maybe a little less. Um, it, it itself, that's a good thing if it preserves or calls attention to films like the Fred Hampton film, uh, which I didn't know existed. I mean, uh, I knew about the fiction film recently and fictionalized version and so forth, but I didn't know this particular, uh, what I would call very raw and, uh, and f fascinating documentary existed at all. So would I have found out about it 
eventually, I guess so. But so the advantage of the list in that sense um, calls attention to it. Um, for people like, go ahead, sorry. We should point out that, that the, uh, the choices every year are really quite diverse. This year, for instance, uh, the return of the Jedi. I know. Uh, you pink, know. Pink. And, and, and the murder of Fred Hampton and Wally. I mean, come on. <laughs> Wally, Pink Flamingos, Nightmare on Elm Street, Richard Pryor Live in con Concert. Now, that's Sound a great film. Sound Sounder, which I think is a really great film. Stop Making Sense. I mean, these are just the S films, you know, but um, <laughs> the, the so there's a great. Um, there's a great attempt to, to really reflect a wide range of, of American filmmaking. One of the things that's been good in the past about the National Registry, and it is that is also good in this era, is an attempt to uh, single out uh, works from uh, independent film from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And particularly, uh, the registry has called attention to some people who I was afraid would get forgotten, like Charles Burnett, mm, who was mm. part of the same LA rebellion that also Silvio Morales was, and she's one of the people picked for this year to be remembered. Well, no, before before we, we get into the films themselves, though, I, there's it's I'm not it's not implicit, Pat. It's explicit. You, you know, you're you're sort of damning with faint praise the registry, and I think Tom's point is well taken. You know, the fact that they do draw attention to them. I'm with him. I I, I did not know about the murder of Fred Hampton. You know, the '71 film. So the fact that they did that did draw attention to it. But I think I, I'd like you to to spin out a bit more you know, what do other countries do, you know, more than just sort of say, hey, uh, pay attention to these films. There are other countries that do a lot more to actually support films, right? So uh, I don't know as much as I want to know about preservation standards uh, in other countries, but in the Netherlands, for instance, there is a government institute specifically for preservation of audiovisual materials. Uh, in some countries, there's, um, uh, there is poor and fake government support for <laughs> filmmaking. Uh, the Brazilian government, for instance, is, is uh, uh, just had the whole, um, their film archive burned down and is doing nothing about it. Oh my God. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's I think, Preservation in general is a completely terrifying topic. I listened at a conference at a film festival to a gentleman from the BBC who said that he had come in four years before and four years before, 98% of everything that the BBC ever did was lost. Wow. And since he came in with a massive campaign of preservation, uh, only 96% of what the BBC does is lost. Well, that's progress. <laughs> yes. And his point was most of what is being done is being lost. And that's absolutely true. Uh, if you look back in history and you look at, for instance, um, what we've got left of cuneiform records, it's actually a mile, you know, it's, it's pretty random collection of what was originally written in cuneiform. So my point is not like other people are doing it better because I think there are some there are some governments that do it better. I think my point is that this country has an 
an active policy has always had an active policy of not having a ministry of culture. And th that this is, this is a uh, small, little, but heroic gesture yes, yes. on the part of the Library of Congress to do what it can, given that, uh, that there is no ministry of culture and there is no consensus on what American culture is on which to create it. And there is no appetite for funding culture the way it should be funded. And as a matter of fact, you can see in the films we'll discuss today that, that they, are, they come about in a moment in which there suddenly is funding for culture. It's the 60s, um, uh, the Great Society and the War on Poverty. And in the same year, the National Endowment for the Humanities, which funds one of these films, the National Endowment for the Arts and, the, and Public Broadcasting, which is important to several of these films, are all created in the same year, 1967. And they're all important to the success of independent filmmaking in, this, in, the, in the 70s. So let's jump into talking uh, about the films. Um, we have picked out uh, sort of collectively The Wobblies, Who Killed Vincent Chin, The Murder of Fred Hampton, Chicana, and Requiem 29 as the labor-related uh, films in the 2021 crop. Um, and so I wanted to start with the Wobblies because it, it is the most obviously labor related one there. I don't think it needs a huge amount of, of explanation because it's about the industrial workers of the world. Um, let me just sort of get you both to to react to uh, to to it as a, as a as a film, Tom. Well, what I love about it is that um, is that out of nowhere, you learn something that I'm not sure would have been easy to find out. For example, um, I'm looking at my text here, uh, that Gompers, uh, Samuel Gompers called the IWW, the fungus on the labor room. <laughs> Good old Sam. And I mean, really, that was wonderful. And that the Wobblies referred to, in turn, the AF of L as the AF of hell. Um, so, you know, a good documentary that, that has, uh, filmmakers who who have not only have a sense of irony but but have a sense of capturing uh some of the things that would escape notice uh is what this film is in part about uh and i'll add one more thing while i'm gabbing and that's little little red hensky uh, oh my god love it i love that <laughs> alice's eggplant it's almost as if you wanted to release that right now separately oh, yeah. from oh, the yeah. Wobbly film is at all. I think it's on um, YouTube. Uh, it probably is. Um, and I, I have in my notes that little red hensky looks like Lennon. I, I mean, I, <laughs> so th these are the these are the moments that a that are that a documentary like this uh, captures that that are in danger of of. Obviously, Disney films are probably more accessible than most, um, but that are in high that are in danger of disappearing or at least not being emphasized for the value they have. I also like, and I'll, I'll make this my final comment, I like the fact that the, that, um, that it, this is not a cold, sober documentary uh, and, and is able to, to get us to laugh as well as to grieve as, uh, in the same film, so. All right, before I go to Pat, welcome, Elise. How you doing? Doing fine, brother, how y'all doing? Okay, we're talking about the wobblies. So I'm gonna, uh, I have a, I have a setup for you, but let me go uh, next to Pat. Okay. 
So The Wobblies is, is a really interesting example of a kind of movie that was being made by uh, filmmakers who'd been radicalized in the white, mostly white filmmakers, all white filmmakers, are uh, radicalized in the 60s and who were um, somewhat nostalgically looking back for heroes, political heroes of some kind of resistance movement in the in the past, and some of whom were actually engaged with various parts of the labor movement. So it's this is a, a movement of films that some of these names are more familiar than others, like Harlan County, USA, actually, which is a film about a strike, is is very well known. With Babies and Banners, which is about the uh, the um, sit down strike um, in I think Flint. Flint, yeah. Yep, we're yep. showing it. We're showing it later this month. Great, and then uh, Union Maids and Seeing Red, which are two films uh, made about uh, Union Maids, is is about women in the labor movement who were incidentally communists, although they were they were not discussed as such in that film. And Seeing Red, which was about communists, uh, the Good Fight, which was about communists going to fight in the um, uh, um, in in Spain. And then fiction films like Prairie Fire, which was about socialist organizing in North Dakota and Northern Lights. Uh, I believe Northern Lights is about- um, uh, Far The farmers. The, yeah, the, um, uh, the Nonpartisan League, I think. Yep, yep. Um, in any case, these are movements, the, these are political movements and they're movements with a strong labor component as well. Uh, and one of the criticisms of these films is that they are kind of nostalgic. One of the delights of all of these films is that they're oral history films in the main, yes. interviewing feisty old people who have not <laughs> forgotten how to be angry about things that people should be angry about. And so uh, they really are inspiring in some ways. I, I thought that some of those geezers in the good fight were some of the sexiest old men I'd ever I'd ever met. You go, uh, and Pat, I you go. <laughs> And and I think I think the the Wobblies is full of uh, fascinating, fun people like that as well. Um, Melvin Dubofsky, who wrote the book on the Wobblies, uh, you know, was kind to it, but very critical as well, saying that uh, that really the Wobblies kind of did themselves in with internecine conflicts more than they more than the government persecution, which the film does document. And it does document things that no one should forget, like the deportation of 1,200 IWW miners in Bisbee, Arizona. There was recently another film about that called Bisbee 17. Um, or, or the murder of uh, more than 100 people on a boat in Everett, Washington, or, or this mass sedition trial that took place in many cities in the US during World War I, but, but the biggest numbers were in Chicago. People should not forget that the government has uh, taken active steps to suppress all kinds of dissent. And as a matter of fact, other films in this collection, the same thing is true of Murder of Fred Hampton, the same thing is true of Requiem 29, that they're documents of government uh, oppression. Of, of resistance movements. I want to go to Elise, and let me set this up for you, Elise, because I thought of you when I, I've seen it before, but not in a while. And the thing that really jumped out to me this time was there's a lot of music in the Wobblies. Uh, I, I found myself singing along. That could just be me, um, or it could be that you told me the other day that I need to sing more. <laughs> <laughs> 
not, and, but not in front, but not in front of an audience. <laughs> no, no, just just me and my cat. But but you know, these were all songs from the Little Red, the IWW's, you know, Little Little Red Book. But I, I just had forgotten how much music, and and not only how much music, but it is it is beautifully up. Oh, she's got her red book. There it is. Got her little red yeah. book right right there. Um, but but music, I thought that really worked um, beautifully with the film. Every time I sort of, you know, sort of thought it was starting to bog down, and this is all stuff I'm interested in, but they'd come in with a song. But anyway, let me, let me go to you, Elise, and then we're gonna, we have a bunch of films, so I wanna move on, but your thoughts, Elise? I totally concur, Captain. <laughs> and, and in fact, I think it was the last one that I watched, and the, the stark contrast between the lack of music um, there was chanting and stuff in other movies, but this was song, and there was there was there was also singing in uh, the Fred Hampton film. Yes, yes. This I thought they used really beautifully to move it along, uh, along with the storytelling, and I totally and agree with Patricia that I just I, I, those are feistiest old farts I'd seen in a long, long time. I was like, yes, people. I was like, are they still alive? They can't be. They'd be nine thousand years old. I know. I know. Because I think I'm the age they were when they were being filmed, right? <laughs> so yeah, I just thought it was great, and I thought it, it was it was it was honoring the cultural tradition of the industrial workers of the world in terms of the use of song, and I thought that that was a beautiful reflection in, in the documentary. Really, There's something really. else I just wanted to point out about the film that I think is really interesting because the film is actually critical of uh, the organized labor movement as not being the kind of industrial labor movement that the IWW was. And, and still the UAW gave a thousand dollars to make that film. Uh, it was the, oh. it was the only, uh, it, the, the NEH gave most of the money, the National Endowment for the Humanities to make my point about right. uh, cultural right. support. But the, uh, the, the UAW gave money and the, the, um, labor unions actually used it, which I um, thought was really interesting because that's not always been true. Uh, I'm I've been looking at Kartemquin's labor films recently and um, the AFL-CIO refused to use uh, Taylor Chain uh, because it was a wildcat strike. Uh, and the, um, the, the, the later film they used, the, uh, Pullman, I, no, I think it was Taylor Shane too. The, the, um, uh, the local union reps went to the AFL-CIO and said, look, this is who we really are. This is, this is saying, this is showing what unions are like on the inside and we have to be able to use it. And they did. So it's, to me, it was very interesting that the UAW supported this film and that the labor union uh, movement used it. So we could do a whole, we could do a whole, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was gonna, I was gonna say well, I wonder if it was the last legacy of Walter Ruther and the Ruther brothers um, influence that that made it possible. He he died the year before, right? Interesting. So, I bet it was. I bet it was. Well, we could do a whole thing on the Wobblies, but we have four other films we want to talk hey. about. I, I want to I want to go to the murder of Fred Hampton, uh, 1971 film next. Um, uh, for no other reason than it blew my mind. I, I had never seen this film. I had never heard of this film. I thought I was pretty well up on the whole Fred Hampton situation. Uh, but I want to, let me, let me, uh, in fact, at least let me start with you. Um, your thoughts? Yes. Um, you know, I, there, there's a Black Panther documentary 
that I can't remember. And it's called the Black Panthers. And then there's a colon and something else that came out. Stanley, Stanley Nelson's uh, two-part film. Yes. 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 And that was the first time I saw the piece about Frank, uh, Fred Hampton's murder. And, you know, when I see things like this, I remember like, I was conscious at that time, right? I was active and engaged at that time, but I didn't know the details because where would I have gotten it unless I was in, you know, in particular caucus or circle or uh, cabal and I wasn't. So, uh, so it was the first time I saw it, I was like, oh my God, and watching it again, um, just the document, they were in the room filming the next day. I mean, that's just incredible. I mean, that the police didn't bother to put the tape around it and all that stuff and say, you know, nobody can come in here, you know. I mean, really, they're tampering with evidence. They didn't give it, they didn't care, they didn't care. And so they did it. And that, and that Alk, and uh, what's the other guy? The other- um, Mike, Mike Gray. Mike Gray. I mean, like, I wanted to know more about them. I was like, where did you come from? How'd you get here? One ends up doing um, the China Syndrome. I think Mike does the China Syndrome. Screen, and, I wrote the screen, right? Screenplay. One of the co-writers of the screenplay, you're right. And then all, you know, who was working with Bob Dylan, you know, doing, doing Bob Dylan. I was like, no, but how did y'all get to this place? Why were you in Chicago? That's how, how did this get you, grab your attention to do this work? Because it was dangerous. It wasn't even like, you know, oh yeah, I'm just gonna go here and film some people marching. I mean, this was like, this had been a, a scene of a crime, of a murder. Uh, and so I was just, I was, I kept digging around for more information on them and trying to figure that out. So, so Mike Gray, this is Mike Gray's production house and Mike Gray and these, these people, I'm not sure whether uh, Jim Dennett, who's the third person was, yes, right. they, they were all involved in a previous film. So the, which was about the 68 convention. And right. Chicago, Chicago was a national hub of uh, political filmmaking. And it really, that all those contacts coalesced around the 68 convention. And um, they were working immediately after that with the Panthers in Chicago. They'd been filming for a year with them. Wow. So this was, these are people who are left-wing self- self-described radicals and they're working with the panthers who have developed as you hear in the film a policy of uh a rainbow coalition of uh of developing uh relationships with different ethnic groups in chicago chicago is ethnically segregated and organized it's not just black white it's 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 many different um uh mutually hostile <laughs> ethnic segments um but they're working amazingly with, you know, the young lords and rising up angry, which is um, uh, white working class kids, um, to with an explicitly revolutionary agenda that isn't articulated. That is, say, you know, the grand plan is not clear. But what's clear is the first step is that all these different ethnic groups should work on the common problems of of a uh, an immiserated society where the working poor are disenfranchised and where racism tinges everything. That's that you know, we should all be working on that, but working within our spheres. So rising up angry should work on the problems of racism in white people, for instance. Uh, I really so want to applaud them. I'm sorry, Patricia. I really want to applaud them and I think they're both gone now, right? Um, 
for including the piece on the free breakfast program. Yes, yes. Because that was stunning. I mean, first of all, it, it just these men serving food to these little kids, right? But I know that, or at least I'd read someone years ago, that that was the biggest threat that J. Edgar Hoover saw of the Panthers. It wasn't the guns. It was that they were in the community and that the community might see them, begin to see them as um, a viable force of, 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 of community building, right? Of, uh, of bringing folks together. And that, you know, that they, they put it in the film and I was just like, thank you so much. And it's the, it's the one thing that I get, did get to do with the Panthers was work on the free breakfast program. They had one uh, in Ypsilanti, Michigan. So uh, I went and worked with that. But I think that that's a key component that they were able to capture and show in the film. Well, and, and, and let me just jump in. I want to go back to Pat and get Tom in on this too, but but I totally agree. And and I was, uh, you know, the, the, the film is called The Murder of Fred Hampton. Well, he doesn't get murdered. I mean, they do a little bit in the beginning, but he doesn't get murdered until halfway into the film. And the whole first half of the film is really about what you were just talking. It was really about the Panthers. It's about class struggle. And I was like, what, am I watching the right film? But I, I love that it's really, you, you, you find out about his life and, and, and he was so young. So I, I also love that, but let me, I, I know, let me go back to Pat and I want to get Tom in. Yeah, so I just, um, I think that some people criticized this film at the time and other people have seen it since as white filmmakers being psychophantic of sucking up to this, this, this black political movement that they don't really have a, a, a right to tell that story. But I think that the people who made the film really saw it differently. They saw it that they and the Panthers were in a, a common struggle and that they were using these fairly sophisticated filmmaking skills to, uh, to tell an important story. And just as in the same way that Judas and the Black Messiah, which uses some of this footage at the end of the film, mm. that Judas and the Black Messiah shows the complexity of the Black Power Movement and just exactly what Elise said, that this is what J. Edgar Hoover was really afraid of. The fact that those, those messages that poor people together can make a difference. That 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 was really compelling. I personally think that's that's why Martin Luther King was killed too, because he was leading a poor people's campaign. But um, but th this um, when I rewatched this film, I was um, I was really moved by the the way that they showcased uh, real really the complexity of that message that Fred Hampton was communicating. Tom. Um, two points. The, uh, I think Hoover had a conniption fit about the idea of a rainbow coalition. I, I think the breakfast, pro the breakfast program was a solid neighborhood centered and obviously thing, but, but on a more political ideological level, the whole idea of a rainbow coalition would have given him fits and starts, uh, as well. The other thing is that in a certain way, this documentary borrows, um, some of its, what I want to say, its tropes, it's, it's uh, uh, from uh, pr uh, criminal procedurals. Do you remember the, the white um, path of bullets? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That to prove which way the bullets went and so forth. And to spend time on that in, a, in a, what would normally be considered a political documentary, I, I thought said a lot about the filmmakers' uh, uh, style and care. Uh, because that's incredibly important. They say, sure, the politics are here, but you got to know that we could present actual physical evidence that this was a murder, an assassination. And 
that's where the that's where the you know when when Fred was murdered, the entire project shifts because it's going to at first it's going to be a discussion of this Rainbow Coalition and what it means and the centrality of the Panthers, but also the you know the the role of these other organizations. And when he's murdered, it becomes a refutation of the whitewashing of of what um, of, of of what the the uh, the prosecutors the grand jury was trying to get away with if it's a grand jury whatever the whatever right. the legal process was it was what they were able to show in that film that that you cannot forget once you've seen it is this is a complete judicial police whitewash they're just lying well and it's a whitewash of an assassination and i can't help thinking you know you know i was watching it after the arbery you know verdict and and it was fascinating. So here's this 50-year-old documentary, you know, uh, and, and, and back to what Elise was saying. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how the hell they got this film made because you could see sometimes you could see other filmmakers and they were using actual, I don't even think, if Pat, tell me if I'm, you know, in 70 or 69, 68, they didn't have video at that point, right? They were shooting actual. No, they, fil they filmed it in 16. And the reason why it's so grainy is they blew it up to 35 for theaters. Ah, okay. And, and dark too, right? It's very dark. Uh, at least interiors are dark yeah. yeah at the beginning of the film but what's fascinating i mean thinking i mean you know, you know arbery you know got some justice you know because of of you know video camera and, and and a lot of the things that have happened because people have phones and they can shoot stuff so it's no longer the cops saying oh you know he attacked me or whatever whatever you know we have we have other evidence now but in 1968 or 69 when that bit was being shot you know you it was much just technically much much more difficult to make that kind of document so you know to see that being done in a 50 year old film and then to sort of think about where we are now in terms of how much has changed and <laughs> not so much right not so much yeah. uh, can i just can i just flip to requiem Please. 29 briefly yeah. because because tom mentioned and i think brilliantly this police procedural. Requiem 29 is a half hour movie made by uh, kids working in UCLA where the LA rebellion was at that moment through something called the ethnic communication program. And this was their first, this was the film of the first cohort. And what had happened is in 1970, there's this demonstration against the war by Chicanos who are self-consciously Chicanos. Being a Chicano is a big deal, by the way, coming out of the labor movement in the fields, coming out of the um, United Farm Workers. That's where the movement for Chicano uh, identity comes from. Uh, so they, 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 they go on this big march, it's peaceful, it's got a permit, and the police uh, attack people violently and, and then shoot a, um, uh, a canister of tear gas straight into the head of the journalist they hate the most and oh kill him God. on the spot. And so the movie is a little bit of the demonstration and the collapse of the demonstration because of the attacks, but then goes to the um, inquest and the, um, the grilling of the photographer for La Raza, the major newspaper, the Chicano newspaper. And so you see the grilling of this photographer where they're asking him inappropriate and irrelevant questions attempting to kind of 
um, smear the name of Chicanos in general. And then there's an interview with him where he takes apart what just happened to him and why it's inappropriate and why the inquest is a whitewash. And so this is actually an incredibly powerful little film. And it's really interesting to see it in relationship to the, uh, the, the, the refutation of the whitewash in Murder of Fred Hampton as well. And tragically, it's, it's really relevant when we think of, um, of some of the uh, police, the indignities on civil rights and human life conducted by police today. So can, can I get folks to, yeah, go ahead, Elise, yeah, please. Is this the same photographer from Chicana? Uh, his name is Raul Ruiz. Yes. Yes, okay, yes. Yes, you're right. The guy from Chicago. Whoa, nice, yes. nice. Elise scores. She, she shoots, I, she scores. <laughs> I just said, I was like, wow, man. Could they be the same people with the same name at this kind of the same time? I'm like when the pictures go back and forth, and I was like, it's not clear to me that Sylvia Morales, who made Chicana, didn't work on Requiem 29. It was a group project, so I didn't see individual mm -hmm. names, but she was there then in that program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can we talk a little bit about, long as we're on the subject, these are all five of them, they're all documentaries. Uh, we'll come to Who Killed Vincent Chen in just a second, but can we talk just a little bit about, and again, I'm just thinking about, you know, the, the documentation of folks these days with cell phones. And, and Pat, you have spent a little bit of time, you know, thinking about documentaries. Um, but again, sort of toggling back and forth between, you know, in this case, with a couple of films 50 years ago when the technology was so different, but the, the question of documenting and how you, how you tell these stories and, and, and where we are now with that. So let me, let me go to you first. I want to get thoughts from both Tom and, and Elise as well. I love the point you made about how we forget how hard it used to be to mm. film. Uh, and it, it has, it is the, the record that, ordinary citizens are making of these indignities has vastly expanded our ability to, to document. Uh, I wish that it had also changed the actual behavior of the police, but it, it has helped to spur a whole movement around um, you know, what you could call defunding the police or reforming the police or limiting or changing the role of the police. Tom? The uh, probably, I don't know how well known this was, but the, the police would go after photographers and filmmakers uh, during demonstrations. This was, this was common knowledge and um, uh, the, I, I didn't know any filmmakers personally, but I knew them as part of the groups that we were in and they were always worried about this. I mean, they, 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 they had no strategy because to defend yourself would, would end up getting you hurt even more. So there were all kinds of discussions about how they would go about filming um, the upcoming demonstration. We're sitting here discussing the demo that we're gonna go on. Uh, and uh, there's a photographer and especially in San Francisco, there's a photographer, there's a, I kept saying photographer, there's a movie maker right there in the room with us uh, discussing this. And um, he's filming us because he wants some, you know, crowd uh, shots. Um, but basically, 
he's worried about whether he's going to survive and how, mm. how what, what are we what are we planning to do on this demonstration which could get him into some deep deep trouble uh by just being there what what are our what are our goals for this demonstration what do we intend to do are we going to rush the building and that's always a big big deal or are we just going to stay out on the sidewalk where we have our permit uh, that kind of discussion um, of um of tactics and strategy. Um, now that I think back on it, was much more important to the filmmakers, or at least as important to the filmmakers as it was to us, because um, we were just stupid and we, you know, and what's the word, naive about what could happen to us. But the filmmaker, uh, the filmmakers had been around a lot more than we had, and they and they really, um, and they would be worried worried in advance, I guess is what I'm saying. There, there were several points in, in the murder of Fred Hampton um, where, you know, it, the, the, the air just seemed to crackle with, with I mean, I, I would not have been surprised for shooting to have broken out at several points during that film. I mean, you know, the cops were, you know, the, the, the Panthers were taunting the cops who were right there. And, and I, I, to your point, Tom, I mean, I was just thinking, you know, I often shoot demonstrations and I sort of forget about where I am, but, you know, I mean, I was thinking, man, if I was behind that camera and you've got Panthers here with guns and you've got cops there with guns, I mean, it's a great story. It's a great shoot. I mean, so to speak, film shoot, but it, it seemed really actually dangerous. It probably wasn't, but I don't know. Anytime there are guns around, it makes me nervous. Anyway, uh, Elise, let me go to you. Keith, question, please. Um, just, just thoughts about, uh, the, you know, again, I'm just thinking about the difficulty of, of, you know, you can, you can shoot, uh, you know, things that are happening with a cell phone, much less obtrusively today than the folks who were shooting these films who actually had to have pretty, pretty big sized cameras and film canisters and Probably, uh, Pat, correct me if I'm wrong, but probably some sort of like a boom mic, maybe. I mean, I don't, I don't think they necessarily had great. I don't think they had built-in mics to cameras back then. Oh, they had. They always had a sound man with them. So a whole, yeah. you had a whole different, you know, footprint as a filmmaker at that time as compared to now, when you know you'll, you've got all of these folks just whipping out their phones and shooting stuff. Anyway, any any thoughts? Well, I. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, for sharing um, that, that folks were aware because, because one of the things that, that occurred to me watching the film, and, and there's something you said earlier too, Tom, was that we were young and inexperienced and, and didn't know the potential. But I, I and, and, and just sitting here, I can, I can remember those moments um, where, where the police are standing in front of me uh, or near me and that fear of I, I know I'm black. I'm going to be the first one dead. I know that. I, you know, that's just common knowledge. I don't have to do anything. I'll just be dead. Uh, and so I, I just think that, yeah, with all that equipment, I mean, I didn't even think about the sound person had to be in there. Um, of course, they had to have a microphone. But <laughs> the microphone's in there. And so we have this, and it's one thing to be intentionally in a place to document something. And it's another thing to hold my phone and go, oh, let me just check this out. Um, but the thing that they did and, and, and the beauty of this film and the preservation of these films and the reason we need to promote it is because this isn't new, what we're experiencing today. 
this isn't this isn't some reinvention. This is a shit that's been going on forever. And I think about how um, I think Elaine Elaine Bernard's husband, whose name won't come to me right now, but he was doing research on the police in um, the UK and said that the bobbies. Um, there was a movement not to have the bobbies have guns because they knew that it would be the working class killing the working class. That's who they'd be firing on. And then I see this in the films over and over. And the one, I think it was um, Reparations, he points out that the cop is laughing, right? I mean, his head is back and, his, and he's just obviously enjoying hurting this person. And then I flash to George Floyd. Yes, right? yes. Which is like, between the pandemic and the, that video of George Floyd changed things in this country and around the world in an incredible way that I don't think any of the film has did before um, because the immediacy of the social media and of getting out and the clarity of the picture of this cop ruthlessly with, with, with no shame in his game whatsoever, strangling another human being in front of everybody for, for nine minutes. And that's the power of film. And that's the power of, of documentation. And it's just that how do we get it out to more people? I mean, I'll, I'll see some video of, you know, some, somebody doing the hustle to, you know, uh, 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 <laughs> some song or another. And, then, and they'll have one million hits, right? And they'll look at something else. Like one of these films is like 545 hits. And I think, oh my God, how did this, how do we get it out there? How do we, how do we make sure that people see it and hear it? And, more, more, more dancing at demonstrations. All right, I need. We, I want to make sure we get uh, uh, who killed Vincent Chin uh, and Chicana in before we run out of time. Um, who killed Vincent Chin? Nineteen eighty-seven. Pat, you want to lead off? So uh, this is this is a film made by by two uh, Asian American women. One of them is a Chinese immigrant, Christine Choi, and the other one is uh, is a, um, a, an Asian American. Um, woman Renee Tajima, who's now Renee Tajima Pena, uh, and one of the, um, the, the, the uh, there is a Chinese American uh, young man who's killed in a bar fight by uh, a white guy who's an who's an unemployed auto worker, um, and uh, and his stepson. And the question is in the title, who killed Vincent Chin? But in fact, uh, he confessed immediately. So we all know that he killed him. That's not the question of the film. The question of the film is um, what led up to the conflict that would make it possible for this run of the mill auto worker to take a baseball bat to this other guy's head and keep slugging until his brains were all over the street. What, what happened there? And there, they actually got an extended interview with the, the killer, his stepson, and, his, and the killer's wife, all of whom, they, they were given um, probation for on manslaughter charges and a very small fine under $4,000, I think, and no justice. One of the things that the film documents is the development of a movement of Asian Americans in Detroit to demand justice 
which they don't get. But uh, that movement is itself important to be documented. But you hear from people in that movement, you hear from the, the guy's mom, and you hear from the family of the killers. And so you're, and every, um, the, the, it's up to you to put all the pieces together. But the, the upshot is these are, these are men living in a world of toxic masculinity at the plant in a time of uh, neoliberal rejection of, um, uh, of the downsides of globalism. They're, they're mad because all these Japanese cars are coming in. There's some really amazing footage of uh, the car industry's propaganda against it is very much racist propaganda against Japanese people. Um, and you see that they're that they don't think that they really did anything wrong and their neighbors don't either. Their neighbors are like, it could have happened to anybody. It was really, you know, who, who knows? Maybe it was foreordained. They don't. And so ultimately, the problem that the film puts forward is not that this this guy was killed but that we have a huge problem in this country with uh, endemic racism and, and late capitalism. And that the industrial world that these men are living in is, is not healthy for any of us. It's, it's another film that I think resonates incredibly strongly even today across you know, half a century. Uh, Tom? Yeah, I'd come back to my police procedural obsession. Um, it turns out that they spent one night in jail the night of the arrest. That's the only penalty they ever received. And of course they pleaded guilty to reduce sentence and all that. Uh, the other thing is that the it's a bar fight, but the killing did not take place at the bar. That's right, that's the right. killing takes place at a McDonald's where they spot Vincent Chin after the fight. And chase and him down, and chase him down. Is it sounding familiar, people? Yes, that and, that, and these details in the film uh, build, build up gradually um, the police procedural part, I think, is important because the sentencing and the plea bargaining and um, it's a man's life and one night in jail and that's it. One of the things that I think is really, really interesting about this film is that there's a lot of music in it, but all of it is performed by, almost all of it is performed by amateurs yes. singing in karaoke clubs and yes. groups. And their music is uh, kind of divided between a Motown sound and uh, a sound of Chinese music specifically. So very, you see people participating in these different cultures and creating their own music, uh, which is, you, is a, I, I thought it was a way of saying, I'd like to know what other people thought. These people are actively making their culture. And if they're making their culture, they could make it differently. Hmm. Elise, do you wanna respond? Or, or just your thoughts? No, 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 real quick. Um, uh, Evans was not unemployed. He was a supervisor in the Chrysler plant. Yes, his, you're right. He was a foreman. But here's the thing that, yeah, here's the thing that, that, that pissed me off about this film because, and it's truth telling, was that I was there in Michigan, living in Ann Arbor, activist, you know, political activist, the whole nine yards. And the story that was perpetuated was that these were disgruntled auto workers who were pissed off about the invasion of foreign. It was bullshit. It was absolute bullshit. It was maintained by every, I mean, everybody was like, oh my God, oh my God, you know, so we pissed off auto workers who are like, no, 
They weren't pissed off auto workers because they've been laid off. They were just fucking drunk assholes who saw an Asian man who bettered them in the bar and then hunted him down and beat his fucking brains out and that they got off scot-free is an outrage to me to this day. I just can't stand I, I, it. I, could, I couldn't tell, Elise. <laughs> and Kyle Rittenhouse didn't help. But I thought, oh my God, shit, you can kill three white men and get away with murder now in this country. Because that's how backwards things are going. Okay, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I, I, uh, I, I think you, uh, I, you certainly. I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. It is. Elise nailed it. Yeah. All right, I, we're going to leave it there. Uh, I want to talk. Uh, close out with uh, with Chicana. Um, Pat, you want to lead off? So the thing about Chicana that I think Chicana is a, a short film by, by Silvio Morales, who went on, on to make other films as well and to work in television before she became a teacher. Um, and it's a film about uh, Chicano women um, and done very simply with moving uh, with images and a little bit of film with and some narration. But I think the thing to really understand about it it's a celebration of Chicano women. Ch Chicanismo, the, 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 the creation of Chicano identity is fairly new at that time. It's, it, it, and it's, it grows in the 60s out of the, the migrant farm workers struggle. And uh, 10 years before she makes Chicana, Luis Valdez, who is, uh, um, who's formed El Teatro, El Teatro Campesino, uh, who had been with the farm workers, um, had written this manifesto celebrating Chicano identity. And this guy named Rudolfo Gonzalez writes an epic poem called I Am Joaquin um, about Chicano identity. And it is a fairly um, masculinist, um, heroic, a kind of pontificating um, kind of epic poem. And Luis Valdez makes a movie called I Am Joaquin. And it is using the same style that Sylvia Morales will, like still photographs with narration. It's deliberately crudely made. It's that they're, they're not making any pretense of being great filmmakers, um, but it is a celebration of Chicano identity. And in a way, she is a woman who is talking back to I am Joaquin. And she's hmm. saying, well, we have an identity that's bigger than the one you're describing. And it's more multiple. It's not just one Joaquin that we're all merging ourselves into. I'm going to introduce you to all these women's voices, and I'm going to show these women doing the ordinary daily heroic things, like housework, like cooking. And, and I'm going to give you a narrator who has a kind of motherly voice, like Luis Valdez's uh, narration for I Am Joaquin was very much, you know, patriarchal. And, and so the, she's like, and this is a matriarch. Uh, so that's kind of the, the backstory to uh, Chicana. And I just say that because it could look like, okay, this is a fairly simple film, but, but I think it's, um, it's particularly important because it's part of the evolution of Chicano identity coming out of that farm worker struggle. Thanks, Pat. Uh, Elise. You know, I thought I had the wrong movie at first. Like I, I clicked on it a couple of days ago. Well, this can't be it. And it's because it was three guys leading it. And somehow I was thinking Chicana, I was going to like see women like from the beginning. So once, once I got into it and I got to hear the story, then, then I'm there. I mean, I, I, 
I love the first person narrative and I, I really, it brought back things that I had forgotten about, about the identity, uh, identifying as Chicana, a Chicano, and that that had, was a recent developer and the impact of the um, Cesar Chavez and the United Food um, Farm Workers Union and organizing and all of that was just refreshed in my mind in a way that I just hadn't thought of in a really long time. So I really appreciate the film in, in that respect. Um, and, that, and them telling their stories, especially the, the, the last sister who spoke, whose name just went out of my head. Um, I just want to say, I want to Harold Chan Noriega, who's a, a, a scholar of Chicano art. And he wrote a book called Shot in America about Chicano movies. And that's where I learned all this backstory. Uh, uh, but it's, it reminds me that it's actually really important that we study these films as well, because it's too easy to forget their context. Yes. Cindy. There you go. Uh, all right, just about uh, Tom. Any uh, quick thoughts on Chicana? No, I didn't. I didn't get to see it because uh, I was too, I was too busy reading the second edition of Patrick's uh, book on uh, fair use, uh, which is a bible to which is a bible for, for writers. So that's uh, my own. That's my yeah. only excuse. That that's almost as good as dog ate your homework on this show. Reading reading Pat's that's book fun. on fair use is. I was working on that for a while. <laughs> Go, Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Pat. <laughs> All right. Uh, any other, any final uh, quick thoughts uh, on, on the registry overall and the films? Uh, uh, back to you, Tom, real quick. Oh, uh, the only thing I, I, I'm sad about is that it's not, it's not a physical repository yes. of, of, of the films. And uh, maybe, maybe Pat knows this. I always had the impression the National Film Theater in London did a better job in, uh, in preserving uh, classic films, but I'd have to check on that. Um, they have the, they have the air of knowing how to do everything, so that may be that may I may be seduced by that. <laughs> I just don't know. I, I just don't know what's going on in London. Yeah, but I will. I yeah, do think I do think um, that the National Register Film Registry has now done its job, and it's now up to us, and especially people in the labor movement, to do our job and to. Uh, social media out these titles and why they're important to us as as um, as recalling social movements of the past that connect very directly to movements for justice and uh, and for for the the rights of ordinary people. Thank you, Pat and uh, Elise. Uh, as as always, you uh, you get the last word, sister. I love movies. <laughs> It's second to theater, but uh, again, it was just a, a delight to, to watch this work and be able to honor it. And I, and I did think about how we can get it out to more people. Uh, and I was thinking about Tom's class that he used to do at the National Labor College and you know how important that is to, to share, teach, learn, spread the word. Well, that's why we wanted to, to have this discussion uh, on this podcast. So we'll, we'll uh, get, uh, get the registry out and links to the films. And uh, Tom and Pat, uh, you were the only ones on our list to talk about this. And, and uh, you, you hit it out of the ballpark. So thank you very much. We really appreciate you spending time and talking to us. Thank we you. need to expand that list, Chris. Well, <laughs> good idea. <laughs> okay. Thanks, that's my, that's my, my to-do for you. All right, okay. we will do that. Thank you all. See you next time. Okay, bye. Love bye. you all.
That's it for today's show. Again, we do have links to the streaming versions of the films we've just talked about. And a reminder, the DC Labor Film Fest Bread and Roses series will be showing with Babies and Banners, which we discussed in our last episode. That's going to be online on January 27th. And Elise will be conducting a Q&A after the screening, and you'll have a chance to talk to her as well. We've got a link to the free screening in the show notes. Also, join the Labor Heritage Foundation this Sunday, January 16th at 8 p.m. for the annual Gonna Take Us All MLK Holiday Ball. It's online, and it's pay what you can. Go to laborheritage.org for details and to register. Thanks for listening. See you next time.